This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing the Godfather at chabacasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Uh, just got back from Dallas um, uh, last night, and so I I, ha- I watched some of the DeSantis. Newsome debate on the plane, and then I wa- I listened to a little bit in the car, and then I caught the end of it at home. But I, you know, I missed some bits and pieces. I guess I can talk about that in a minute. Um, but I kind of feel like I'm completely out of the loop because, like, um, I had to give this talk at Old Parkland, um, and uh, it's this annual, basically the Krauthammer lecture series kind of thing. Um, it used to be the speech that, Kra- that Charles gave every year, and now I do it, and it's a big part of my year. And um, so I was concentrating on that. Plus, I ended up writing not only a G file on the perfidious threat that a sandwich shop monopoly may pose to our life as we know it, but I ended up also writing this separate, sort what I call a sidebar thing. Um, it's basically a separate G file. Um, explanatory thing about some antitrust stuff. And so I just wasn't on top of the news. And we can talk about sandwiches too, because you, you know who likes sandwiches? This guy. So, and then Henry Kissinger died. I have not waded deep into all of the Kissinger obits and debates. I guess I should sort of start there. I've always found the the intense hatred of Kissinger or the intense admiration of Kissinger to be kind of weird's the wrong word. I just, uh, it had no purchase on me. Um, clearly brilliant man, clearly a impressive life. I mean, you can't, you know, as we, as we make the point in the morning dispatch uh, today, there's no disputing that he was a great man of history in the way we used to think of great men, right? Um, maybe not as great as the actual leaders, right? Because that's always sort of, you know, one of the great distinctions. But, you know, he's up there. 
is on a list with, I don't know, Talleyrand and Metternich and those kinds of people. I don't know how you would rank him above or below. I, I would say probably below, but I, I, I honestly, I don't know. Um, I'm kind of on a 19th century European history kick these days. And so, um, anyway, we can talk about that too in a second. Anyway, uh, Kissinger, as you, as probably makes sense as someone who was a, you know, pretty serious anti-communist conservative type. I mean, I should say, first of all, he was, he, he, he became national security advisor in 1969, like two months before I was born. So he was always in my life a kind of a, a figure of the past to me, even though, you know, he he circled the orbit of a lot of institutions that I've been involved with. He was friends with the Buckleys. He would appear at some National Review type things from time to time. I've seen him speak a few times through AEI. I've seen him on the, um, I used to see him on the New York, on the flight from DC to New York once or twice. Um, I gotta say he was a Tolkien-esque figure in his 90s, 80s and 90s. I mean, sort of rotund, um, not quite, you know, like he looked like he could have been some kind of dwarf king um, towards the end. But I'm not throwing stones because he made it to 100 and I'm pretty sure I won't. Um, but so, you know, and I, and I know Hitchens hated him and Anthony Bourdain and a lot of the left. And there's a lot of people out there doing these like cheap, you know, war criminal dies. The Spencer Ackerman headline, I, I'm not going to read his piece. I do not read Ackerman, but he, he wrote a piece for Rolling Stone. And the headline is just juvenile, um, petty. And it's the kind of thing that if a right of center place did about, uh, left of center figure, everyone, all the people laughing and giggling and thinking it's great would immediately recognize it for its juvenilia. But the headline is, uh, war criminal, like war criminal, Henry Kissinger finally dies at age 100 or something like that. You know, and I, I can even, I can even make space for the war criminal thing. I mean, I kind of disagree with it, but like, it's the finally dies, you know, just reveling over people's deaths is always, um, bad journalistic process, um, you know, process, but that's me. Um, the thing, so I, you know, obviously because of the October 7th stuff, you know, I am, I am more, and I've talked about this a few times on here. I'm more attuned to anti-Semitism stuff than I normally am. You know, I usually talk about anti-Semitism as if it's sort of a joke kind of thing. Um, I'm not saying anti-Semitism is a joke, but when I bring it up, it's usually like, you know, they forgot my Diet Coke and they must be anti-Semites kind of thing. And the thing that sort of always kind of bothered me about that, that's, again, I'm not ascribing it to anti-Semitism. I can just see why people would wonder a little bit insofar as, you know, there have been important national security advisors, secretaries of state, secretaries of defense in American history, most of them, when the left doesn't like their policies, um, they blame the president, right? I mean, they, they don't blame the functionary below the president. And yet the uniqueness of the vitriol towards Kissinger always seemed like a little bit of a double standard. And now again, you know, it's like, 
why wouldn't you just say Nixon's the war criminal rather than Kissinger's the war criminal? And I understand there are a lot of people who call them both war criminals, and that's a defense. And another defense would be that, you know, he was just so much more powerful than a normal national security advisor or secretary of state. In fact, he was the only one to hold both titles at the same time that you could say he was responsible for policy in a way that you normally would attribute to the president. But it's funny, it's like as a, again, as a right-wing anti-communist guy, I always had my criticism of Kissinger from the right. I don't think he was a full-blown realist, but the sort of, the sort of, you know, realpolitik, which is a little different than realism, um, to be honest. I mean, they, a lot of people use the terms interchangeably, but like, the philosophical realism of foreign policy stuff. And I'm just thinking about this out loud. I don't, I don't know if I've ever written about this distinction, but like it just occurs to me that the, the, the school, the theory of foreign policy realism is, has always been grounded in a kind of Marxism by proxy kind of argument that nation states have inherent interests and their material interests, essentially, They're, it's almost like reducing nation states to homo economicus kind of thing. And that these interests that are just plucked out of the ether as these inexorable forces of the universe are the things that drive various nation states foreign policy. And that's the thing I think is garbage. I mean, I, I really do. I just think it's just factually and historically and analytically untrue. It's, it's, it's kind of like Hobbes' social contract theory, which has the problem that they've never been able to find a society or evidence as a society, never mind a nation, where the social contract actually was a thing that worked the way Hobbes suggested. Um, there's no piece of paper anywhere. I mean, the constitution is not what Hobbes means by social contract. Um, and so it's, it's just rooted, it, a lot of this kind of stuff is rooted in a weird kind of pseudoscientific anthropology or teleology. And, you know, nation states act on their conceptions of honor. They act on their conceptions of, of, uh, destiny, right? They act on their conceptions of, uh, glory, and they also act on the in the the conceptions of various leaders of those nation states and their personal definitions of honor, destiny, and glory. Um, which is why a lot of nation states do things that are not in their interest. You can talk to your blue in the face to me about how. Russia's invasion of Ukraine was inevitable because of, of Russia's historic this or, or vital interest that. At the end of the day, I, I'm just going to reject the argument because a saner, wiser, more rational person, and that's part of the thing, right, is like foreign policy realism is supposed to act on rational interest. A saner, wiser leader than Vladimir Putin would not have invaded Ukraine, at least not the way that he did, right? I mean, like, you can make this argument that, that Ukraine was always going to be a threat to, to Russia and that Russia was going to do something about it. And that, that I'm open to if you're grounding that in sort of an analysis of 
you know, historical trends and, and psychological profiles of the Russian elite and all this kind of stuff. But if you're saying there's some cold, inexorable force that was going to force this to happen, um, I just don't think it's true. And even if, so even if it was bound to happen, a different leader might have gotten his army into better shape before invading Ukraine. A different leader might have gotten, um, his, might have put enough troops on the border um, before he invaded Ukraine. A better leader might have run his intelligence services so that he didn't believe all of these guys who lied to him about how Kiev would topple overnight, right? Um, things like individual leadership abilities and the contingency of what the other side intends to do, these things still matter. And so like history just does not unfold in some sort of Hegelian kind of way. Anyway, that's the problem among my many problems with realism. Realpolitik, it just, and maybe I'm just making up a linguistic difference here, but I don't think I am. I probably could do some reading on this. But realpolitik is not bound up in these, you know, systematized, theoretized, abstracted, reified um, uh, conceptualizations about how the processes of history unfold in a scientific way or anything like that. Realpolitik is like just about like cold eyed, no tears. Let's just do what we got to do here. Uh, diplomacy and statecraft, right? You cut deals with bastards if that's what you need to do for your interests. And also, you know, look, I, mean, I think there's a certain amount of idealism in Kissinger insofar as he's, you know, he has a certain respect for America's values, America's role in history, American as a safe haven for, I don't know, the Kissingers. But I think one of his defining thoughts was, or defining goals was at being a refugee from Nazi Germany was avoiding great power conflict. And avoiding great power conflict requires throwing a lot of little countries under the bus sometimes. And I'm not justifying that. I'm not defending the various decisions he made about Bangladesh or Cambodia or any of these kinds of things. I just, it's been so long since I've read up on a lot of these things that I can't, I can't, I can't muster the passion to back up what I think are my, my convictions about some of these things right now, or I forget the passion. I just can't muster up the, the, the details enough to not walk myself into some sort of cul-de-sac. But I do think I'm right about this sort of great power thing is that he just, he really, really, really wanted to avoid nuclear war, which is a reasonable thing to want to want to avoid. He, you know, realpolitik, you know, to borrow from the I Ching of the Godfather, can be boiled down into sort of like, um, it's business, it's not personal. Right. These are the things we have to do. This is the life we have chosen. And it can be confused with cynicism. I don't think Kissinger was a cynic. Um, but at the same time, I've always been more idealistic in my foreign policy stuff than than the realpolitik crowd. Because I, I think over time it's sort of like the obsession, like sort of like this Trumpian obsession with toughness. There is this thing that when you become obsessed with the virtues and importance of toughness is you start being tough 
for toughness's sake rather than towards any actual goal. Um, you start turning toughness in, from a means to an ends. And, and I think that can be kind of corrupting. If, if you're always just looking to take the, the smartest realpolitik shortcut to your goals, some important things are going to end up being left on the roadside that I think you should be carrying with you. And so that's why, you know, my standard line has always been idealistic about ends, uh, realistic about means. I, I always think America should be moving towards, you know, certain idealistic things in foreign policy. Um, after, you know, look, again, first and foremost, you have to protect the United States of America. You have to have a strong national defense for the basic reasons of why states exist. But the second order part is where the idealism comes in, um, which is, and look, my defense of America is idealistic too, because I think it's a great country and I'm patriotic and, and I want it to, I want the Republic to endure. Like if America became some terrible country, I would care much less about national defense. But, uh, you know, in terms of foreign policy stuff, I believe in promoting democracy and liberalism and human rights. I believe in promoting trade. I believe in all sorts of, you know, I believe in uh, standing athwart things like genocide. The thing is, is, you don't have infinite resources, so you have to pick and choose what you can do, what is a reasonable use of your time, because time is really the ultimate resource, and, and they're just not making more of it. And so you have to be realistic about this. You have to choose. You have to make, there are trade-offs. We can put a lot of time and energy into this project, but that means we're not going to put a lot of time and energy into that project. And so I think there's a little idealism in, in, in there's more idealism in Kissinger than I think some of his haters would give him credit for. But like my criticism of his always came down on the right, up from the right. And I remember I had this wonderful friend. I knew him through National Review. We called him Dr. John. He was an Australian. He passed away a few years ago. I'm pretty sure he'd be okay with me telling the story. He was one of these great curmudgeons. He was this Australian eye surgeon, lived in Southern California. Um, and he was one of these guys, always gruff, curmudgeonly. But and then he would tell you stories about all these, you know, Vietnamese kids that he adopted and took care of. He brought back whole families from Vietnam. Um, he was a he was a military doctor, eye surgeon in Vietnam. I, I think he was still fighting for the or was serving with the Australians back then. And um, anytime Kissinger came up, anytime Kissinger came up, he would get angry in a way that has nothing to do with like normal politics stuff. He would get angry because friends of his died because he felt Kissinger abandoned our allies in, in South Vietnam and, and abandoned. I, mean, I, I can't, I don't want to misrepresent the details of his story, but he could go on at great length about it. And this was always sort of like, you know, my dad's part was like the, the, the real politique of detente and trying to get on, on, get right footed with the Soviet Union required from the conservative perspective, throwing some countries under the bus to communism. And that was always the sort of, that was the, the anti-Kissinger tradition I grew up in. And um, so it was always kind of funny when I became friends with Christopher Hitchens to hear, you know, the, hear him get blue and red in the face from the left about how much he disliked Kissinger. I, I should probably go read more stuff about it. I did ding, I did read Tevi Troy's, he had a good, he had a good obit in the examiner 
and Kevin's got a great piece, which I just started, but I had to get recording because we have an editorial meeting in, in like 40 minutes. Uh, no, it's like an hour. But I read Tevi's piece this morning and he talked about how, you know, Kissinger made it, in, you know, into the popular culture and he appears, um, there's a reference to him in the Pink Panther. And I dinged him on Twitter saying, how dare you not mention that Kissinger actually negotiated uh, the U.S. Uh, non-aggression pact with Latveria, which was, of course, Dr. Doom's uh, tiny little country in Eastern Europe uh, in the in the Fantastic Four Marvel comics. And uh, Tevi responded that he only had room for one factoid about his pop culture influence, and he went with the Pink Panther. It's a, it's a judgment call. I'm not sure it was the right one. Okay, let's take a second to hear from our sponsor. Do you owe back taxes? Pandemic relief is over now. Along with hiring thousands of new agents and field officers, the IRS has kicked off 2024 by sending over 5 million pay-up letters to those who have unfiled tax returns or balances owed. Don't waive your rights and speak with the IRS on your own. They are not your friends. Tax Network USA, a trusted tax relief firm, has saved over $1 billion in back taxes for their client, and they can help you secure the best deal possible. Whether you owe $10,000 or $10 million, they can help you. Whether it's business or personal taxes, even if you have the means to pay or you're on a fixed income, they can help finally resolve your tax burdens once and for all. So call 1-800-245-6000 for a private free consultation or visit TNUSA.com slash remnant. That's TNUSA.com slash remnant. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. All right, so what else? Uh, I had that debate thing last night. I didn't catch every second of it. You know, I was debriefing my wife when I came home, and so it was on in the background, and my wife, oh, did she hate it? Um, she said the whole thing was stupid. My view going into it was that both DeSantis and Newsom could come out winners because the audiences and constituencies they are trying to impress are completely different. So, like, doing something that infuriates the left could be good for DeSantis and doing stuff that infuriates the right could be good for Newsom. And then, so therefore, they're both on independent paths and don't really have to worry about persuading anybody else. I'm not sure it worked that way. I don't, I don't know. I don't know that it actually was as successful for Newsom as some people are saying. I haven't studied all of the instant reactions. You know, last night, the social media influencer types for the DeSantis people were just really, 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 really aggressive in suggesting that or claiming that DeSantis was this clear winner that was so obvious that he he's going to be the next president, that he's just this powerful debater, he's this fantastic candidate, yada, yada, yada. I didn't see that. I mean, I, I think DeSantis won on most of the facts because he had the facts on his side. Um, California's problems, the blue state model problems are real. And the red state model, you know, uh, alternatives or solutions 
are real too. And that doesn't mean Florida's doing as great as DeSantis claims, nor does it mean necessarily that California is doing as bad as DeSantis claims. But California's got real, real problems in the, in the sort of blue state, you know, decriminalized, petty crime kind of approach is a real problem for California. But I, I just, I don't think DeSantis comes across as a particularly personable, compelling guy. He comes off as more, you know, uh, pugnacious, you know, in this constant saying, that's another lie, that's another lie. Some of the things that Newsom was saying, it seems to me, were probably lies. But it was just, it was kind of school hall bullyish kind of rhetoric rather than like the kind of thing that I think DeSantis would better be better served if he could, if he could figure out how to talk like a different kind of politician. But I just don't, I don't think he can. And I think he gets angry and I think it shows. I did think that Hannity did a terrible job. And um, I thought that the sucking up to him, I watched the panel afterwards where they had, um, I don't mean he did a terrible job as like a TV presenter. Hannity's very good on camera. He knows how to do the, you know, to, to be polished. I just thought he was a hack, you know, in the sense that the questions, uh, again, I didn't see every little bit of it, but I asked my wife, I was like, has there been a single kind of gotcha question for DeSantis in this whole thing? Because I haven't heard, hadn't heard any. And she said, not that I heard. Um, meanwhile, all, almost all the questions, the whole premise of the thing, it was all loaded to put Newsom on defense, right? It was, uh, the questions were loaded. The framing was loaded. When, and when the questions were turned to DeSantis, they were all softball layup things for DeSantis to, to, to whack out of the park. You know, um, I know there's a mixed metaphor in there. And like one of my favorite ones was they came up with this thing that seems very real, you know, very serious. And in and, and the sense, and, I, and I, I'm not saying it's statistically invalid, but they came up with this thing where they took all these different kinds of crime and compiled them into a single stat about like major, major crimes. I can't remember what, these, what they exactly called it. And they were major crimes, right? But they, they fold them all together to have, so to show that California has something like 520 cases, uh, incidents per 100,000 people and Florida only has 200 and something. See, California has twice as many of these kinds of things. And it was so obvious that Hannity, probably in collusion with the DeSantis people, came up with this combined number thingy because that was the way you can make California look the worst and Florida look the best. Because so you could, if you could fold in, if you get fold into the average, things where Florida underperforms, it would bring down the things where. Florida overperforms. And, and Newsom clearly saw it. I didn't think he did a particularly good job of pointing out the bad faith of the thing. But he pointed out, you know, the, the murder rate in Florida is higher than the murder rate in, in, in California. And, you know, Newsom claims that's all because of gun control laws. And he might be right. But I also think that a lot, I mean, a lot of the stuff was really kind of lowbrow um, insofar as California and Florida have very different populations. I, I don't know all the demographics off the top of my head between Florida and California, but I would just assume that Florida has a lot more old people as a share of population than California does. Maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think so. Different mixes of immigrants, different mixes of, you know, 
of college college educated versus non-college educated, all these kinds of things. And so this idea that you can compare them as apples to apples across all these different metrics, I just thought was like really, well, it's very cable news. It was very sort of simplified and silly. And, you know, the attempt to say that Newsom is responsible for the, for having twice as many mass shootings in California since some, since they both came into office as DeSantis is for the mass shootings in Florida. I, it's just a dumb thing to argue about because, you know, first of all, when there's a mass shooting, people like Hannity and DeSantis are the first ones to say, this is a cultural problem. This is a, um, you know, that you can't blame the existence of gun control laws or the, what kind of gun control laws you have on these things. This has to do with something deeper, more pernicious in the culture and yada, yada, yada. And then all of a sudden we're going to say that, you know, DeSantis is responsible for keeping mass shootings down to eight since whatever date, but Newsom is responsible for having 22 since then. And that also gets you into the population sort of comparison stuff. The definition of mass shootings that they use, which normally um, pro-gun people have a lot of problems with, and I think they're right about this. I mean, get Charlie Cook going on this definition of mass shooting thing. The mass shooting thing is means an incident where four or more people are shot. And I'm not in any way, shape, or form condoning or writing off gang violence, but the motivations for gang violence are different than the motivations for the things that freak us out about mass shootings, right? Mass shooting, you know, school, the Parkland school shooting, those kinds of things, the, the horrible shooting, I can't remember the name of the town in Texas, you know, these are the, the, the Las Vegas thing. These random acts of nihilistic mass murder that don't have a profit motive to them, right? They don't have a, or even a sort of revenge gang violence kind of motive to them are just simply a different category of, of outrage. I'm not saying gang violence isn't an outrage, but we process it differently. And when I say we, I mean American culture. I mean parents. I mean kids. I mean schools. I mean popular culture. It's just a different thing in our heads because it's a different thing. And it's the randomness and it's the evil, the deliberate evil of it that is just, you know, so different. The Sandy Hook shooting and a terrible gang war between Crips and Bloods registers differently. And it's not because of a black and white thing. It's because killing a bunch of kids with a sniper rifle or whatever that weapon was is just so much, it's just a different category of evil. And I think normal people understand this. And so like using these, you know, four or more shootings things, which really is contingent about how many cities you have, how much gang violence you have, which is a perfectly legitimate thing to sort of ding California for having more gang violence. It also has more major urban areas than Florida does. You know, that's fine. But to use this mass shooting number as a way to go after Newsom when normally the people, you know, team Hannity, um, would have all sorts of skepticism and pushback on using those kinds of metrics. I just thought it was more evidence that the whole thing was a you know partisan weighted kind of nonsense thing. And on the other hand, I do like the idea of doing these kinds of debates and I'd like to see more of them. 
I, I don't know why these guys feel so compelled to be jerks um, towards each other. And well, I guess I kind of do know why. I just don't like it, right? I mean, there's this whole you have to be a fighter kind of thing. And since we're on DeSantis, I, I, I know you people want me to stay off of social media, but you know, it's partly my job. It's really interesting. I don't know entirely what to make of it. I'm going to ask some people. But in the last two weeks or so, it's interesting. The, the, the DeSantis social media influencers, you know, the, I don't know if they're paid, if there's some, or I mean, I, I know that some are, but, you know, there's a group that's all in on Team DeSantis and all they do is tweet about, DeSant, you know, how DeSantis is awesome. Um, just like there's a Trump team of social media influencers. I have, I really have no idea how the, the back end on that kind of thing works. Do you, do they get paid? Do they have anticipate jobs in an administration or a campaign? Are they just all in? You know, I'm, I'm sure it's probably variations of all of those things. Cause I know people, you know, for years who've gotten all into some candidate and it's not like they were working for the campaign. It's just, they make it their cause. So whatever it is, but I do think there's some coordination there. It's just interesting in the last couple of weeks, the pro DeSantis hardcore social media influencer guys are really doubling and tripling down in painting DeSantis as the real MAGA choice. I know that's always been part of the campaign strategy, um, but it's much more intense recently a lot more talk about the uniparty um which i think is a ridiculous silly juvenile concept for for the most part i mean this idea that there's no difference between republicans and democrats is is just exhaustingly silly um sure if you are a hardcore serious marxist i can see how you say that right because at a certain distance the space between the sun and the earth looks tiny, right? Um, at a certain dist ideological distance from the Republican and Democratic parties, since they are both, you know, upholding pernicious capitalism, blah, 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 blah. You could see how there's no difference between them. But, you know, pick an issue where you think that, that you think that is important, um, abortion, uh, foreign policy, Domestic policy, <laughs> um, taxes, uh, you know, uh, it's difficult to think. I mean, I'm trying to think of one that's actually where you can think they're sort of, they are the same, you know, there is very little difference between them. Right now, I'd say entitlements and trade, right? Because Trump moved the party left on both of those things. There's very little difference between the two parties right now. I, I think... There's a huge difference between conservatives and liberals on those issues, but as a matter of political willpower to do something about, you know, free, you know, making our America more free trade or making America uh, more fiscally solvent by dealing with Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid, the parties are basically on the same page, but like not on immigration. Anyway, the uniparty thing is just another way of saying my guy is hated by the establishment, this giant, scary establishment, um, that if it were a tenth as scary and powerful as the people who constantly bitch and moan about it, they wouldn't be able to bitch and moan about it, right? I mean, it's just like, why is the, you think the deep state is so incredibly powerful 
And yet I'm allowed to make millions of dollars talking about the threat of the deep state, right? I mean, that's sort of like Steve Bannon's whole grift. I think it's what I think is interesting about the the DeSantis crowd going hard into this MAGA ear than thou kind of approach. I don't know, I can think of three explanations, and they're not mutually exclusive. One is they're seeing the sort of donors and others rally behind Nikki Haley because they think Nikki has the best chance of beating Biden, which she does. I, I honestly, I, I do think the arguments that DeSantis, and I, I get I get really stupid juvenile crap from some of the DeSantis people, even though I retweet a lot of their stuff because I think it's of, you know, it, they're good criticisms of Trump and, you know, and they're not all terrible people or anything, but some of them are just stupid juvenile, juvenile jerks to me. And they, you know, you say you don't like Trump and yet you won't support the only candidate that can beat him, blah, 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 blah. It must be because you're a grifter. And it's like, they just, it's like foreign policy mirroring. They, they, they think or they pretend to think that because they believe DeSantis is the only one who can beat Trump that, and because I don't like Trump, that if I'm not 100% DeSantis and behaving like a partisan hack, um, being a de facto press secretary for DeSantis, it must mean that I'm not really anti-Trump. Seriously, I get this kind of crap a lot. And I just think it's so incredibly stupid. These people who do not understand that one of the reasons why I don't do the Trump stuff is because I, I don't want to behave like I'm the comms director for some RNC committee or campaign or some candidates campaign. I, I'm, I'm not going to do that kind of boosterism for any candidates, even the ones I like. But since they do it, since they hackishly do it, this like guy Cobra Commander or something is one of the leading ones. Since they do it, they assume I should be doing it too. And it's just, they, it's a category error. They don't understand who I am or wh- how I define my job. But anyway, um, sorry for the tangent. Um, where was I? So one possible explanation is that this is a reaction to the, um, the rallying and the momentum around Nikki Haley, who is a more conventional, conventional pre-Trump Republican. That's why I like her. I got my criticisms with, with Nikki Haley. My wife does not work for Nikki Haley anymore. Um, there's no relationship, no professional relationship there whatsoever. I think Nikki's basically right on foreign policy. I think she's right about domestic policy for the most part. I think her stepping in it with that thing about anonymous Twitter accounts is not nearly as horrifying as people who are addicted to being anonymous on Twitter are making it out to be. And she cleaned it up okay, but whatever. I mean, I, I, I think it was a mistake. But she's clearly got wind at her back and it's coming from the sort of more traditional, you know, the, the more remnanty parts of the Republican coalition. And so the, I think that part of one explanation is that they're trying to differentiate their brand from Nikki because they can't get the voters that Nikki is getting anyway. So you might as well lean into your differentiation by being the alternative to all that. And, you know, and they're probably right to think that they'll get a lot of aid and comfort from some parts of the sort of right-wing media complex. It's difficult because so many of them are still for Trump, but they'll get some. Another possibility is this is also what you would do if your only strategy at this point was to anticipate that somehow Trump 
gets out of the race at some point because of, I assume, the criminal stuff. And I'm not saying that DeSantis knows that's going to happen or even thinks that's going to happen, but that's the contingency. If, if your only hope of sort of taking off is to get all of those voters who say their second choice is DeSantis to become DeSantis voters, right, because Trump is out of the race, then you would also lean much more heavily into this kind of framing. There was another reason why I thought it might be the case. Well, if it comes to me, I'll tell you. Uh, what else? Um, so I don't know. I'm, I'm hoping it's just like uh, gastrointestinal distress after um, eating some bad clams. But uh, I'm starting to think about writing another book. Actually, I haven't talked to Steve about this, so like <laughs> he was going to be pissed if he listens to this. Uh, um, I don't know. Uh, I've been thinking about this for a while. Um, it is by no means a thing I've committed to in any way. I don't know if I have the bandwidth for it. As I've said many times, I don't like, I don't particularly love writing books. I like having written them. Um I like learning the stuff that I learn when I write them. Um, but uh, having that obligation just like Marley's ghost clanging around behind you at all times is awful for me. There's some people who just absolutely love it. You know, my friend Charles Murray, you know, he he needs to write books. And so he's always saying my last book, and then he writes another book. Um, that's not me. Probably because I just have so many other things going on. But anyway, I kind of feel, I've been thinking about it for a while, and I've been on, I told you I'm on this 19th century European politics kick. I've been reading this book about um, the revolutions of 1848, which I have studiously avoided learning very much about for... 30 years. I'm not saying I didn't know anything about it, but like 1848 is like, it's complicated and it's weird. And there are all these different names and different countries. I've always been interested about why there are certain years uh, where you have these explosions of protest and revolt, right? You know, it was like 1830, 1848, in France, it's like 1830, 1848, 1870, and 1968. But the amazing thing is that sometimes, like 1848 and 1968, it's also in a gazillion other countries. Right? Sometimes there's just something weird in the water that creates these moments. So, you know, America had a pretty rough 1968. So did Germany. So did a bunch of places in South America. 1848 blew up, you know, these revolts in what? I guess it started in Italy, but in Germany, and when I say Germany, I mean like 412 different little countries in, Ger in the German lands, in Germania, obviously France, but also Belgium, and, and um, anyway, it, it didn't really have happened much in England um, or Russia, and maybe that's one of the reasons why I've kind of ignored 1848, is that I've always been interested in English history and I've always been interested in Russia history. Uh, I say always, but you know, the, but like the stuff on the continent after 
the French Revolution, it just gets so complicated. Anyway, so for a long time I studiously avoided, but then you know I started getting interested in Napoleon, and then I got interested in this 1848 stuff. And anyway, I'm 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 starting to think that there's a there's an argument about conservatism that you know can be borrowed from some of this 1848 stuff. And there's also something about this moment in our politics that I think is like 1848. Again, I don't want to write a book about 1848 at all, at all. I'm just saying this is, this is what I'm blaming for giving me this idea because there's this argument that in many ways, sort of modern conservatism, I don't want to say it was born in 1848 because I think you get that more from Burke, which is earlier, obviously, but um, that, as a political phenomenon, right? As a sociological, political reality, conservatism, a recognizable form of conservatism to, in the, of, from the Anglo-American perspective, takes hold in places like Europe. And, you know, we can talk about the United States too, or at least I could if I wanted to do this. I don't, can't believe I'm doing this. Um, I should stop, just stop talking. I'm going to talk myself into a miserable life. Um, anyway, I had this idea that, you know, like, because what happens is at the beginning of 1848, there are all of these revolutions and there is this part of the revolutionary tradition, right? I think I talked about the revolutionary tradition a little bit last week, which is the glorified self-congratulatory version of, of Marxist historical inevitability stuff that says the revolutionary tradition has to be about moving the wheel of history in a forward progressive tradition. And there were a bunch of people who, partly because of their memories of 1789, of, of the French Revolution, thought they were going to get more French revolutions and that the revolutions would succeed. I mean, revolutionaries kind of almost always think to one extent or another that they're going to succeed, otherwise they wouldn't risk it. Um, or at least that they have a really good chance of succeeding. So there was, all, there was a lot of optimism in the beginning that these revolutionary movements, some of which had very good arguments to them. I'm not dismissing all of them. Uh, it depends on where, that's one of the things that makes 1848 so complicated is you get these, some of these movements were dominated by like liberal democratic Republican types who felt that the, the system wasn't giving them adequate representation. And in other places it was dominated by more sort of socialist you can't say Marxist, although the Communist Manifesto, I'm pretty sure it comes out in 1848, right? But that's not what's driving these people. These people were already in the pipeline. But you have more radical people, more people in the tradition of Babeuf, who was the crazy um, Jacobin ideologue. Anyway, so these movements have different arguments and different merits in different places. Again, why it's so complicated. But at some point, in a a lot of these societies, they're just like, yeah, no, we're not going to do this again. We still remember what the Jacobins did in the terror. We are sympathetic to, uh, you know, some of them, we're sympathetic to some of the aims of some of these people, but these newfangled socialists and these newfangled nationalists, uh, they just want to go a little too far and we're going to slow their roll. And we're going to continue to defend bourgeois liberal democratic capitalism and see how this thing plays out a little while longer. And it never really occurred to me about this before. And I think I'm right about this. I mean, again, I've been reading, poking around reading stuff, or at least I think it's a defensible starting point to think about things. 
And the period also is interesting to me. Again, I'm not going to write a book about 1848. I'm just telling you that this is where my head is at these days. But, um, you know, this is the period where nationalism really starts to become a serious political movement in a bunch of different places. Um, and this is one of my great, you know, frustrations is the nationalists have this, um, and they had it back then too, right? There is something about the argument from nationalists that makes this claim to some sort of ancient authenticity, this sort of old consciousness. It's almost Jungian. And even though nationalism was a new movement, um, nationalism is a very young concept uh, historically. And um, we don't need to get in the weeds about how I think it's essentially reactionary and it's not a, not a coincidence that it emerges around the same time as socialism because they're both basically different versions of the same sort of reactionary tribal thinking. But these things emerge then and as a response to liberal democratic capitalism, um, which is still, and the industrial revolution, I should say, right? So the, these things are, and this is a big part of my argument in Suicide of the West, is that this is kind of like the allergic response, society's allergic response to industrial capitalism are these kinds of collectivist movements. Um, they think they're new and forward-thinking, and they think they are post-liberal, to borrow a phrase from the new right types, right? They think that they are the next stage in history. That was Marx's argument. But in reality, they are an attempt to cobble together to manufacture um, a return to an old way of thinking in modern garb, right? This sort of tribalism, um, this sort of collectivism, that's what they feel they're losing. They don't like the alienation, the enemy of, of modern democratic capitalism, or at this point, just modern industrial capitalism, because the democracy stuff is still unfolding. Um, and the people who wanted more democracy were among the good guys, even though a lot of them got crushed. And so anyway, it's this sort of pivot point where a lot of these contending ideas fought, and we are still sort of living in the wake of that period. And anyway, it got me thinking about the period that we're in and these various arguments about, again, post-liberalism or anti-liberalism. I just, that's the big part of my talk at, um, in Texas was about was how, you know, basically the post-liberals, when I say post-liberals, right, I'm not talking about, you know, the editors of the Washington Post. I'm talking about people who think we need to move past liberalism, the, you know, the Deneen and um, what's his name, McIntyre and, you know, that crowd, um, the people who think, you know, liberal constitutionalism has had its day and we need this other thing, um, whether it's nationalist or, or a, some sort of part of a Catholic, you know, global renaissance where, you know, America becomes some, some kind of papal state. I don't know. They, you know, they think the Enlightenment was bad, all that kind of stuff. The post-liberals, I argued in this talk yesterday, are basically joining a game in progress that the left-wing post-liberals, or if you want to keep the teams clear, more distinct, anti-liberals have been at for a very long time. Because critical race theory, Frankfurt school Marxism, cultural Marxism, all of that stuff, that's post-liberalism too, 
That's also a project aimed at getting past liberal democratic capitalism to some sort of other structure of society where certain groups are privileged over other groups according to the dictates of social justice. And I think both of these, both sides in this argument are wrong and profound and ser- for serious reasons. And which leads me to the thing I, I, I promised you I'd get here about the book I actually do want to, I, I, I don't want to say want, the book I'm thinking about that maybe I should write, which is basically something that people have been asking me to write for years and years and years. And I've always said I don't want to do it, but I kind of feel like I have an obligation to write sort of a, you know, a, you know, like conservatism, a personal interpretation by Jonah Goldberg kind of thing, where I can sort of pull all this stuff together. I really liked George Will's book, you know, The Conservative Sensibility, and, um, but I don't think it was written to pull in anybody who wasn't already pretty literate on all of this stuff. I think in some ways it was sort of like a, a memo to his, to his future biographers to say, okay, here's, here's how you get to describe my views in late in life kind of thing. And it's a great book. I mean, I liked it a lot. I've had him on here to talk about it. I'm a huge fan of George Will, but that's not the kind of book I would want to write. And I don't want to do a straight up intellectual history where I'm a slave to the chronology. I've, I've done that and I, it's exhausting. And so that's why it would be like a personal interpretation thing. But it's for me, it, I don't know, it feels a little bit like why Steve and I started the dispatch is like, this is a moment where a lot of people I don't think have lived up to their responsibilities. And so I feel like I should. And um, I'm not trying to subtweet or call out any or cast shade on anybody in particular. It's just that's how I feel. I think a lot of the traditional right is has come to its senses in the last couple of years um, and is more grounded. Um, but that's in part because so much of the right has cleaved off into these other camps that the people left behind, it's sort of a natural filtration, you know, selection things that the people left standing who are still proud to say that, you know, Ronald Reagan was a good president, that William F. Buckley was uh, important and good for figure. I mean, you know, you had Tucker Carlson apparently had some, some Rothbardian stand-up comic. I don't know who this guy is. I don't, you know, follow this stuff too closely one of these guys who are like the sort of the Paulista wing of, of libertarianism, which is like weirdly MAGA and nationalistic and kind of gross, at least going by the libertarian party chapters that have been taken over by this crowd. Anyway, he had someone in that ecosystem on Tucker, Tucker had him on his show and talked about how William F. Buckley was one of the great villains of the 20th century and Tucker cackles and laughs and says, I couldn't agree more, which I just think is kind of funny for a guy whose brother's name is Buckley and whose son's name is Buckley, and who up until fairly recently had no problems with William F. Buckley. But again, there are a bunch of people trying to f- start these different projects to redefine what it means to be on the right, what it means to be a conservative. And I feel like someone needs to push back against not just that asininity, but the more serious efforts to do it, you know, I mean, I, as much as I disagree with Patrick Deneen, I think he's a serious guy and he knows a lot of things. I just don't think he knows as much as he thinks he does about a lot of things. His 
reading of history is often very informative and interesting. His political analysis, I think, is really weak, which is part of the point I made in that review of his book. But it's not just Deneen, it's not just Tucker, it's just coming out from all sides. And I kind of feel like I should engage the battle of ideas on this stuff in a more cogent and and methodical way. And so that's what I've been thinking about lately. Hopefully I'll get over it soon. Um, you know, it would, it, it, uh, I just get exhausted thinking about it. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Oh, yeah. So, you know, this Tucker thing with calling William F. Buckley a villain of the 20th century and, and all this nonsense. It's, um, it's, oh, no, no, that's not, that's what it reminded me of. Uh, so Axios has this piece out. You should, let me see if I can call it up real quick. We've talked about this before, I think. You know, there's this effort afoot from, Heritage is part of it. Um, these other groups. Yeah, there's a Project 2025. They have this thing called Agenda 47. And Heritage, the Heritage Foundation is part of it. And they're putting together this thing about how they're going to staff the next Trump administration with hardcore MAGA uh, cultists who are not loyal to the Federalist Society. They're not loyal to traditional conservatism. I think it was the New York Times piece a couple of weeks ago writing about this. They had one of the leaders of it say, yeah, the problem with the Federalist Society is they don't know what time it is, right? And this, do you know what time it is thing is one of the things that I sort of would, I feel obliged to sort of push back on because it's basically the kind of arguments that Julian Benda was attacking, you know, before World War II, it's, it's kind of a Weimar Germany nationalist sort of argument. I'm not saying it's a Nazi argument, but it is this argument that was all over the place in the 20s and 30s that parliamentary democracy was corrupt, was not up to the task of modernity, that it was a putrefying corpse, that it was, um, its day had come, Right. There's the Anne Moreau Lindbergh book, um, The Shape of Things to Come. Um, I can't remember the exact title of it, but um, she coined, ah, I can't believe I'm spacing it, but she coined some phrase we still use today about the way, oh, wait, maybe it's the wave of the future, I think was hers. And um, this argument that 
these institutions are crumbling, the democracy is crumbling, that it's too weak and it's enervated and it's, it's stripped our men of their masculine vigor. And that's why Oswald Mosley is the man of the future. I mean, there are all these kinds of sorts of arguments out there um, in the twenties and thirties. And the problem with these arguments is what, whatever merit they have analytically about the weaknesses of our institutions or the problems with democracy is that when you buy into the strong version of them, you um, give yourself permission to no longer fight to defend those or fix those institutions. And this is the David Reboy argument is that these institutions are crumbling and there's no stopping it. So we need to figure out what to build on the rubble, which I think is a profoundly unpatriotic way of thinking about these things. If you think that the constitution or liberal democracy um, is, was a good idea and you think it's crumbling, then the job is to fix it not to plan what to replace it with. And there are these ideas all over the place on the new right world, and I think they're wrong um, and, and, and quite often bad. I'm using simple words so everyone understands where I'm coming from. And, um, um, and anyway, so that do you know what time it is thing, when I hear it, I basically hear it as if someone has just yelled, Hail Hydra because I think that they are committing themselves to projects that are um, antithetical to the American experiment. Um, doesn't mean they're all militants or terrorists or Nazis or any of that kind of stuff. It just means that I think they're wrong. Um, and so anyway, Axios has this piece out today about the questionnaire that they're asking applicants uh, to staff this new, uh, the new Trump administration which again, they don't want people like the Federalist Society because the Federalist Society doesn't know what time it is. They still like the Constitution and think it's worth defending. They want people who are willing to swing for the fences for whatever Trump wants to do the day he hits the ground running. And um, if the courts knock it down, that will give them a whole new front to say, see, we're stabbed in the back by the courts. This proves that the courts, the judicial system, is no longer um, capable of defending the true MAGA national spirit and that it has to, they, we need to reform that too and purge this and whatever. Um, it's, it's setting itself up for this, this sort of chain of arguments to just further attack American institutions rather than actually try to fix American institutions. And anyway, in the questionnaire, um, you know, it asks all these questions about basically like, you know, in effect, when were you red pilled? Like when did you become a, full acolyte in the church of, of, of MAGA and Trump and someone close to this project, uh, a Trump alumnus who's seen this stuff explained, this is a quote in Axios. They want to see that you're listening to Tucker and not pointing to the Reagan revolution or any George W. Bush stuff, right? They, they want to staff the new administration with as many non-traditional conservatives as possible because the way they see it, the traditional conservatives who actually believed in, well, first of all, believed in some things, but believed in constitutionalism, sound public policy, um, rule of law, uh, that kind of stuff, they were actually holding Trump back from being the real him, right? They don't want, any, you know, they, they want Mark Milley court mar are put on trial. They want John Kelly put on trial. They want Bill Barr put on trial, right? And these are the people that a lot of critics of the Trump administration 
considered to be, um, you know, uh, villains because they were and Trump enablers. But for the true hardcore Trumpies, uh, they were the people standing in the way because they were the circuit breakers. They were the, the, the grownups who said, yeah, we're not going to do that. And that's why, you know, they want to go after all those people. And they certainly don't want any more of those kinds of people in the next Trump administration. And um, that should, again, I'm not saying it's going to make him Hitler or Mussolini or anything like that. I'm just saying it would be bad because these people gen- tend to be really fourth rate um, and they're kind of nasty people. And, um, and even if you don't buy that, if you're anything like a normal traditional conservative, decent conservative, someone who thinks Reagan was good or Buckley was good or, or any of that kind of, or George W. Bush was good. You should worry about what this would do to the Republican party and the conservative movement. If Trump became president, you know, um, and if you're left of center, um, or anti-Trump, um, in a more serious way, this should horrify you. Right. This, this is just garbage. And they actually have the questionnaire that they give people to ask. And it's kind of an interesting piece. And um, I think that's wildly worrisome as a conservative, never mind as an American, which I also think it's worrisome about. Um, and I think this is someplace where DeSantis, and I have said this before, because contrary to DeSantis's, you know, uh, cheerleaders, I actually don't criticize DeSantis all that much anymore. Um, and I give him credit where it's due. I think he's a good governor. Um, but DeSantis was also right about how Trump has changed. Trump is not the guy he was, you know, uh, eight years, six years ago. Um, first of all, he's definitely gotten older. He's gotten weirder. Um, he's gotten crazy bitter. Um, he surrounded himself with some really terrible people. Um, and, um, and he no longer thinks, even if you disagree with all of that and you think his psychological profile is as great as it ever was and his, his mind is as strong like Stalin, right? He clearly, because he said it, thinks that he no longer has to have this transactional relationship with the legacy factions of the conservative movement, right? He now thinks that he doesn't have to care about the what the pro-life movement wants because he's got their voters. And I think there's some truth to that. He doesn't feel obliged to put federal society judges, to be sure, on the court um, because the voters who wanted that are with him now. He certainly doesn't feel obliged to do sort of public policy the way the Heritage Foundation wants because the Heritage Foundation now intellectually, corporately, um, and business-wise is a lapdog for Trumpism. It's, it's like the point of the Heritage Foundation when it was founded was to move Republicans in a conservative, poli- in, a, 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 in a policy direction of uh, mainstream conservatism, right? It was to give them the ammunition and the arguments and the encouragement to be movement conservatives, traditional Buckleyite, um, Stan Evans types conservatives. Fulner type conservative, the founder of, of, of the Heritage Foundation. And under this Kevin Roberts guy, they've 
completely flipped the script. Their mission now is to come up with the talking points to make MAGA BS sound smart. And I think it's shameful and it's sad because I still think there's some good people over there. But I think that, and I, look, and I've never liked the heritage model. The heritage model was always too overtly political for me. It was too oriented to Capitol Hill. But I was always glad that it existed. Um, I just never, it was not my cup of tea. And I think their one voice policy is gross. Um, for a think tank, one voice policy for a political party, eh, you know, I don't like that really either, I guess, when I think about it. But it makes more sense to me. Um, I'm not really for one voice policies about any place that claims to be nurturing intellectual um, and principled uh, debate and discourse. And Heritage has always had the one voice policy, but they used to go about it in a grown-up way. And now it's just sort of dictated from on high, depending on what the, the pro-Trump press release or the, you know, when Tucker was on air, what would get Kevin Roberts on, on Tucker's show. And so anyway, Trump, at this point, not unreason again, not unreasonably or not without reason. I mean, unreasonably makes it sound like Trump's got good arguments. He's on the merits as a political matter. He is not wrong to think that he owns enough of, he's converted enough of the right to him that um, he no longer needs to dance to any other faction or institutions tune, right? When he first got elected, he didn't know a lot about politics and he didn't know a lot about the Republican party. He didn't certainly didn't know a lot about conservatism, but he had a sort of New York times reading understanding of politics, which was that the NRA is really powerful. The pro-lifers are really powerful. Republicans like tax cuts. He was perfectly willing to sort of, and they want conservative judges, right? So like, he was like, yeah, sure. You can have that. I'll do that for you, whatever. And he, he made these explicit and implicit deals. And over the course of his presidency and now post-presidency, an enormous number of voters who used to use those things as their litmus tests have switched their litmus test to whether or not you're in favor of Trump. And so a bunch of institutions who depend on those kinds of small donors They've changed their litmus tests from conservative principles or pro-life principles or whatever it is, supporting Trump or Trumpism or MAGAism or whatever, right? There go the donors. I must go with them for I am their leader. And so if you wanted to see this, this stuff that the Axios piece is getting at, you know, it's setting Trump up to, or it's setting the Republican Party up to no longer be a recognizably conservative Buckleyite, Reaganite, conservative party, and to instead be this sort of, you know, Caudillo cult of personality thing. Doesn't mean everything Trump would do as president would be bad, but I think he would prioritize the bad things. The people who say you get too worked up about it, it's like it's funny. Like I saw this thing the other day where people were beating up on the Economist for saying that um, Donald Trump was the number one threat in 2020, threats the world in 2024, or something like that. And people are saying, that's ridiculous. What about Iran? What about Russia? What about China? Blah, 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 blah. I take the point, but like, I kind of have a linguistic editorial objection more than anything else. The There is this, you've, you, once you start 
once you notice it, you can't unsee it and you'll find it all over the place where you'll get these, it's sort of like a Mott and Bailey argument. Someone will say, this is the single worst thing ever. And then you'll get, and then defenders of that worst thing, let's keep it just so I can keep it in people's heads. Donald Trump is the greatest threat to the world, right? That is the economist proposition. I haven't read the economist piece, but I just saw some chatter about this. And the economist, so, and I gather the economist argument is that Trump would be bad for NATO, which he would. Trump would be bad for um, the war in Ukraine, which he would. I don't know what his response on Israel would actually be. That's a, sort of an actually an interesting question. And opinions can differ about whether it would be bad or good. So just put that one on the side, right? But on all sorts of fronts, he would be bad, I think, for America's fiscal solvency. He'd be bad for social peace. He would be bad, right? Why do I have to give a rat's ass about whether or not he's the number one threat, right? This is this one of these phrases. And the problem is, is that it's a phrase that we use to say, this is the thing I'm most concerned about. And then people say, that's crazy. Look at all these things that are more concerning. The simple fact is, is like, what if I... You know, what if I said he's like the fourth biggest threat to the world, right? More defensible than saying he's the first biggest threat. But the point is, is that he's a threat. And so people get caught up on the sort of rhetorical excesses of saying the biggest or the worst or the number one. And it gives them an excuse not to actually deal with the substance of the concern, which is that he is a problem. And you, you see this time and time again, you know, it's, it's sort of, it goes back to, for me, people know I've been talking about how I don't like monocausal explanations of anything. The place where I really started becoming um, vexed about this was, I remember it was, first time I noticed it was with Tim Russert grilling, now I can't remember, maybe it was Cheney, uh, but he would do it all the time, right? He would grill guests on Meet the Press to say, what's the number one reason we're going after so we're going to, we want to topple Saddam Hussein. The problem was that rhetorically, the number one reason gets boiled down by the media and by critics and detractors and also proponents of various things to be the only reason. And number one is just the first number on a list of indeterminate length, right? There was actually a really interesting interview with Paul Wolfowitz about this issue in, I think it was Wolfowitz, in Vanity Fair, I mean, again, this is 20 years ago now, or, you know, 18 years ago, where he explained how the weapons of mass destruction thing became the rationale for the Iraq war. And it wasn't because it was the primary reason. It was because it was the reason that everybody internally in the various bureaucracies across both parties could all agree on. Right? There, were, there were some people who wanted to topple Hassan Hussein for this, and there were other people who thought the best reason was that. But the one reason that Democrats and Republicans, UN, US, foreign intelligence agencies, domestic intelligence agencies, I shouldn't say domestic, America's intelligence, intelligence agencies, the British, the French, whatever, everyone could agree about the WMD thing. So this became the easiest argument to make because there was no internal dissension. And then over time, it got boiled down to the only reason. And there's a difference, you know, that's, it wasn't even the number one reason. It was just the most agreed upon reason, but it then became the number one reason. And then it became the only reason. And we do this in a lot of debates where we, um, we sort of nitpick on, um, 
the framing of things. It's, again, it's like my long-standing gripe about when people say, you know, when I say Donald Trump isn't as you know isn't Hitler, they all of a sudden think that's like this huge defense. Like, how dare you say Hitler? I mean, that Trump isn't Hitler. I mean, what's wrong with you? Why do you defend Trump? And I was like, maybe I think Hitler was like a really bad dude and that you could come short of, you know, 10%, 20%, 50%, 99% short of being Hitler and still be bad. Um, and, and it's this weird psychological thing where maximums, all of a sudden become defined as essentially minimums, right? We, we say that, you know, Hitler was this consummate evil in, in human history and, or this unique evil. And I think he was a consummate evil. I think he was an evil figure. There's no getting around that. I think there are reasonable people who are more mad at Stalin than at Hitler. I'm not one of them. I get it. But, you know, I mean, I, I, I just, I, I think for all sorts of reasons, Richard Pipes made this point when asked, I think by Jay Nordlinger, you know, why do we have so much more demonization of Hitler than we do of Stalin, given that their comparative death tolls are, you know, it's not clear that Hitler is the winner, right? And the, 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 if you're going to do those kinds of tallies. And Stalin immiserated a lot of lives too. And, and Pipes' answer was, because it just feels that way. And I, I, Pipes was a very serious intellectual historian. I'm not dismissing him. I'm, I think he's right. But just because it feels that way doesn't mean that Stalin wasn't also an incandescently evil figure. The problem is, is that because of the way linguistics work in our minds, we have this thing of saying that these totems of evil or badness um mean that if you're not if you're not associating with that totem that means you're not saying they're bad at all and i think it really poisons a lot of uh, discourse conversation debate um because it is totally reasonable to me to say that donald trump is not the number one threat to the world in 2024 i think it's kind of silly to come up with a number but let's just say he's the seventh that's pretty bad. That's a pretty good reason to find a different Republican nominee. Um, and, you know, if the next six on the list are like uh, nuclear war, possible nuclear war with China or um, the eradication of Israel or Putin's conquest of Ukraine and then threatening NATO at its border, you know, if, if, if it are the, the return of some terrible pandemic, if these things are AI, AI going rogue, totally open to arguments that those things are of greater concern in 2024 than Donald Trump. That doesn't mean that there's no, nothing to worry about, about Donald Trump becoming um, elected president. It's one of these rhetorical tropes that I find, I hear all the time and it really, really um, vexes me. Beyond that, thank you everybody for, for listening and indulging me once again. I wanted to talk about the sandwich shop monopoly, but um, you'll just have to subscribe to the dispatch to check that out. Got a lot of great feedback about it. I also got a lot of weird negative feedback, which maybe I'll address in a G file or in the comments. I don't know. I find some of the criticisms, like every now and then, much less frequently than I used to, which is a criticism I get all the time. People say, why don't you write funny stuff anymore? 
Um, or why don't you write Gonzo stuff anymore? Why don't you write old fashioned G files anymore? And I'll say to them, well, I do it from time to time, but like, it's just not where my head is at, but they make it sound like I never do. And that's not true. And then for the people who don't like them, they have these, you know, they give me, they send me these emails or they write in the comments, things like, you know, has anyone ever told you that writing like this detracts from your main points and that you can make them a lot more cogently and concisely if you didn't have all of these weird jokes about Taco Bell causing explosive diarrhea or whatever. I'm like, yeah, I know that. I know that. But like, it's the journey, not the destination with these kinds of things. And it's just, it's just weird to me that like they make it, these people in their criticisms, they make it sound like I write like this all the time, which I don't do either. But anyway, I like the sandwich monopoly thing. I thought it was fun to write. Um, you could tell I was, I was vexed by it. I don't know. Got to go to this editorial meeting. Thanks to Danny Pleka and, and Tim Alberta for being on this week. I thought they did great. And there were some good conversations there that I want to return to some of those themes. And uh, I'll talk to you next time. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.